0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another political rewind. I'm Bill Nigget. We have so much political news uh, to discuss uh, today that I want to get right to the panel and begin our conversation. It's Wednesday, which uh, means my partner on the show today from the Atlanta Journal Constitution is Greg uh, Bluestein, political reporter for the AJC, author of Flip, now a contributor a contributor to NBC's uh, platforms. Uh, Greg, Big election uh, last night. I mean, these were not the most important races. We already have, you know, the governor's race uh, resolved, the Senate race resolved. But nevertheless, some of these runoffs uh, tell us a lot about uh, what the uh, outlook looks like moving forward in Georgia.
2: They do.
3: These were high stakes. These, You know, you're right. The governor's race, the Senate race, they're already decided. We had basically the, you know, what could be the deciding elections for two U.S. House races, um, a very important second district race uh, to decide who will would, who would go up against uh, Sanford Bishop in southwest Georgia. And then these statewide Democratic runoffs um, for, for these very important seats. Um, and then, you know, and then all, all the testimony yesterday. I mean, yesterday was the busiest day <laughs> in months in Georgia. So there's a lot of news to discuss today.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're going to start by talking about the election uh, results, runoff results. But then we are going to move into this extraordinary testimony given by two Georgia election workers, in addition to Brad Raffensperger and Gabriel Sterling at the January 6th committee uh, hearings Uh, yesterday. Before we get to that, Karen Owen is back with us, a a professor of political science and now a dean at the University of West Georgia. Karen, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show on the day after an election.
0: Thank you. I'm excited to have the conversation with each of you.
1: And we're glad to have uh, Alan Abramowitz, Emeritus Professor now at Emory University and uh, one of the state's long, long long-time observers and analysts of politics, not just here in Georgia, uh, but nationally. Alan, thank you so much for being with us.
4: Sure, I'm delighted to be with you.
1: And we're glad to have back Chauncey Alcorn, who is a reporter for Capital B, which, um, if you haven't checked it out yet, Capital B is a terrific um, online uh, digital uh, uh, news organization that specifically focuses on news um, uh, filtered through the black perspective and about the black experience. Chauncey, thank you for being here as well. By the way, give give out the uh, URL for Capital B Atlanta particularly so they can check it out.
5: Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on, Bill. So that would be atlanta.capitalbnews.org. Feel free to check us
1: out. Okay, thank you for being here. All right, Greg, let's get to uh, some of the uh, interesting aspects of what we saw last night. And I'd love to start with uh, Stacey Abrams. Uh, Stacey Abrams took something of a risk by deciding to intervene in runoff elections in her own party and endorse candidates. And... All three of her candidates won, and in a couple of cases, won by overwhelming margins. Greg,
3: yeah, her gamble definitely paid off, and it was a risk. I mean, you know, Beene Win was the front runner in the secretary of State's race, but that, it's still an unpredictable runoff where you've got such low turnout, anything can happen. But I think the biggest of those three gambles was Charlie Bailey for lieutenant governor. Um, Charlie Bailey has high name recognition because he ran for attorney general. But Kwanzaa Hall, um, his his opponent, uh, came in with the most votes after the primary and was basically trying to coast. He was skipping events. He he skipped the Atlanta Press Club debate, Um, was trying to coast on his high name recognition in the city of Atlanta because he's a former Atlanta councilman and was briefly a U.S. House member. Um, And it was Abrams' support who did really turn the tide for Charlie Bailey. It's hard to argue otherwise. And I talked to some Democratic strategists last night who pinned it almost entirely on Abrams' endorsement. And and look, Democrats know that the soft on crime um, attacks are coming. Brian Kemp even has a new ad out today saying just that, that, that Abrams is soft on crime and supports the defund the police movement, even though her campaign says she doesn't. Well, Charlie Bailey, the Democrats hope, helps inoculate them from some of those attacks because he was a prosecutor in Fulton County who went after gang criminals. Um, And it also worked on the other side of the council table as a defense attorney, so it's a unique experience. But that's why this was so important for Stacey Abrams. That's why she put her her capital on the line to endorse Charlie Bailey in this race.
1: Uh, Chauncey, two things that I'd like to ask you to start us off with. One is that uh, the results of the Democratic run show us unequivocally Stacey Abrams' is absolutely the leader of the Democratic Party in Georgia. No one dare challenge her in that role. But second and more important probably is um, with, with the, uh, Charlie Bailey's victory and B. Wynn's victory, the Democratic ticket has some diversity. Um, and, and that's going to be important moving forward when you have an African-American candidate at the head of the ticket and an African-American as the U.S. Senate candidate. Right, Chauncey?
5: Absolutely. That was the subject of of discussion uh, 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 during our recent interview with D Daw. Tagler, who basically was purporting that you know there was a there was a, a resurgence. We saw this huge surge in early voting um, um, by all uh, by the major parties uh, saying that there were more black people turning out this election cycle early. Um, and D. Uh, Daw and Tagler, who jumped into the race in March, argued that that was what propelled her to even get to a runoff with Dean Nguyen, who had you know, more name recognition, um, as well as um, um, Kwanzaa Hall, who has also you know, been a staple in the Atlanta area. Um, so that was kind of the, the argument there. But as far as Hall losing um, after jumping out, I think he was like at 30% on primary day to, to Bailey's roughly around 15 17%. And then um, Abrams endorses um, Bailey, who happens to be a white guy, um, over Hall, and uh, in, the, in um, the case of Dean Nguyen, who's Vietnamese-American, over Dean um, Dawkins Taylor. But there were some uh, reticence there, or people who were, uh, thought that was a little strange, but as Greg pointed out, it clearly paid off. And uh, it does show that the Democratic Party is kind of a big tent party with uh, a lot more diversity, um, with Abrams at the top of the ticket, as you noted.
4: Yeah, I, I think Ellen? that... Uh, Yeah, thank you. I think that uh, it was clear that Abrams' endorsements uh, were crucial, especially in that uh, lieutenant governor's race. Uh, And that it was, she obviously felt that it was very important that the Democratic ticket be racially balanced um, because there are two things that have to happen for a Democrat to win a statewide election in Georgia. The first thing uh, is that you have to have a very strong African-American turnout. Um, in 2020, uh, African-Americans made up about 30% of the electorate in Georgia in both the presidential race and the runoffs. Uh, that was crucial, and that's going to have to happen again. And with Stacey Abrams and Warnock at the top of the ticket, you know, there's a pretty good chance that you'll have a strong African-American turnout. But the other thing that's crucial is you have to get a – sufficient share of the white vote. Uh, and of course the growing, uh, Latino and Asian American vote as well. Um, but for a Democrat to win in Georgia, you probably need to be getting close to 30% of the white vote. Uh, that's what the Democrats were able to do in both the presidential and runoff elections in 2020. And I think what Abrams and other top democratic leaders are hoping is that by having this balanced ticket, um, that they'll be able to pull that off again or have a better chance of uh, getting that share of the white vote and getting a a substantial uh, share, a large majority of the Asian uh, and Latino vote as well.
0: So from my perspective looking, and, and Alan's right, he's definitely speaking clearly about the endorsements. But for me, it was a clear show yesterday that there wasn't a pattern where if you were the top vote getter out of the primary that you necessarily were going to win the runoff. But what we did see is the endorsement helped those sometimes who were in that second place spot or who had finished in the second place spot come ahead and actually win. Um, on, the, on the Democratic side, of course, that, on the Republican side, we see also some mixed results there. but. I think that's interesting because there's a lot of conversation we go into runoff that if you have are the top vote-getter in that first stage, you're more likely to win the second stage. And here we have a lot of mixed results. The Democratic Party certainly now, as the slate is set for November, is more racially diverse. I think that's going to be very impactful as, we start, as they start to talk to voters across the state. The lieutenant governor's race will be interesting where you have um, the Democrats you know, Charlie Bailey endorsed by Abrams, what the messaging will be there against a Trump-endorsed Burt Jones, right? So what that dynamic will be for that race, because they're both not as well known across the state as others at the top of the ticket.
1: Um, Greg, I'm glad that Karen uh, singled out that lieutenant governor's race in the general moving forward, Charlie Bailey and Burt Jones. We should also add that there's a, a libertarian candidate in that race, Ryan Graham. Um, and we, we have no idea what how he, he could factor into the race and whether or not there will be a clear winner on Election Day. But let's talk for a minute about uh, the Charlie Bailey-Burt Jones matchup. Burt Jones, um, to the best of our understanding, given the way the January 6th hearings are unfolding, given that he was a part of that slate of fake electors in Georgia, given that he was an election denier for so long, um, it, is he going to be under a cloud all summer and into the fall because of that in terms of general election voters I assume that Republicans will vote for him
3: yeah look bill we, we know that not just Fanie Willis and the Fulton county prosecutors are looking at the fake electors but also the federal uh, officials mm-hmm. federal investigators are they've been come they've come under scrutiny of the January 6th committee uh, we heard we heard yesterday that that you know that the White House that Trump um, personally, reached out to Roda Ron, uh, McDaniel in the RNC to get involved in the fake elector scheme. Um, I've reported, and other outlets have reported that federal, uh, federal FBI and federal agents have questioned uh, phony electors and have subpoenaed the documents uh, involving the, that fake elector scheme. So it's going to continue to dog uh, Bert Jones, but you know what he says is the same thing that that other. Um, members of a false Republican elector slate say is they were doing it just in case, just in case any of these legal actions. And there were some still pending at the time in December, 2020, just in case those legal actions panned out. We all knew that they wouldn't, you know, every single other legal challenge was laughed at a court. Um, but now there's a new phrase for those phony electors. And we heard it yesterday in the testimony. They call them contingent electors. And, and, and that's probably <laughs> the line we'll, we'll hear from Burt Jones and some of his allies.
1: <laughs> uh, at Alan, Ellen, uh, weigh in on that, please.
4: Yeah, yeah, that that definitely is going to be the line of defense. I think um, it makes no sense whatsoever uh, because the law specifies very clearly how you get to be an elector uh, and that you have to be uh, certified. You know, the electors, the the actual electors are are, are uh, certified by the state as representing the winning candidate. So there was no way that any of these fake electors were going to uh, uh, be able to fill in at some point. So, you know,
1: Um, it seems like a pretty far-fetched theory to me. Mm -hmm. It's going to be interesting to watch how that unfolds. Karen, um, uh, let's talk about the secretary of state's race in terms of uh, the January 6th committee hearings. And and then I'd love to get you involved in that too, Chauncey. Um, Karen, Yesterday, Brad Raffensberger had a, star, a starring appearance. We'll talk about it in more depth a little later in the show. As a witness in front of the January 6th committee, he was commended, as he has been many times since uh, the election, for uh, holding the line against Donald Trump. Um, and, and I can't help but wonder uh, to what extent he is going to benefit in a general election race from being held up as a, a line of defense against Donald Trump, despite the fact that Raffensperger, uh, while he did do that, has perpetuated other theories about, uh, uh, about uh, people illegally voting, illegal, undocumented immigrants, for instance, voting. And I wonder how all that's going to play out and accrue to his favor when he runs against B. Wynn and, again, the Libertarian Ted Metz. So the
0: Secretary of State handles more than just elections. But I think this election, the general election, will focus predominantly on the role that the secretary of state has in running the elections for the state. For Raffensperger, I think he does have a little bit of an edge. He went through the primary without a runoff because we did see that some Democratic voters were even willing to go into the Republican primary and support him. And he has held the line against Trump, which I think for many in the state, they're going to look at that as a good stand for truth in our elections. Mm -hmm. However, he will have to counter the fact that the new election law was put in place and how he is actually implementing that. Um, And that will be, I think, the line of defense that uh, B. Wynn takes about the voting rights for the state, how the access for people to vote in the state, how that's maybe been interrupted or affected in some way. And so it will become a secretary of state race not on the whole role of that position, but really about elections and administering those elections in the state.
5: Johnson? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be interesting to see um, you know, the role that uh, Trump plays going forward. Obviously, his and candidates have not fared well in the primaries. That doesn't speak well of the proposition of you know, having uh, this whole situation hanging over the head of Burt Jones. However, um, there also has been um, a huge surge in um, early voting. Um, I've spoken uh, and confirmed with both parties that their number crunchers have said that, that part of that has been a major surge in um, African American voters as well. Um, and uh, now there's debate about what that means, about if it's, if, uh, you know, the, uh, the lasting impact of the uh, election integrity bills, if there actually indeed is voter suppression or not. That being said, Those factors and uh, Raffensperger, you know, kind of being celebrated to some degree um, from um, bipartisan for standing up to Trump um, in 2020 is going to, you know, it's going to be a difficult thing to overcome. Um, 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 Being the win and the other Democratic uh, Secretary of State challengers do point out, however, that he um, um, that uh, Raffensperger has been promoting and, you know, talking about uh, election integrity and things of, um, you know, voter ID and other issues that relate to election law. That, you know, um, they that critics argue are meant to suppress black voters, uh, people of color uh, and to uh, help the GOP. So they will continue to press that issue. Um, It'll be tough to make that case, I think, um, if the uh, voting numbers that we're seeing and early voting continue, um, you know, uh, as we enter the fall.
1: Um, Greg, just to finish that part of the conversation out, uh, w- what we haven't said yet, we've mentioned B. Wynn any number of times. She's the daughter of Vietnamese refugees. Um, she, uh, So she has a historic place in a statewide election, yes?
3: Yeah. Uh, she would be the first Asian American elected to an executive office statewide in Georgia history. Um, and so when we talk about the diversity of the slate, uh, she's a big part of it. And. Um, and, and really, I mean, you know, it's interesting that Charlie Bailey would be the, I think we mentioned, this really, he's the only white male Democrat uh, on, on the ticket as well. When um, you contrast that with a party that used to routinely uh, nominate white men, um, you know, 2014, Jason Carter was the Democrat nominee. Uh, and, and, and last cycle, John Barrow was the, uh, the Secretary of State nominee. Um, and, and now Charlie Bailey um, is the only, is only male Democrat, uh, white male Democrat on the, on the ballot. But, you know. This, this cycle in particular, um, it's, it's, Democrats have more of a struggle of contrasting with Republicans in the sense that Herschel Walker um, is, is, of course, on the top of the ticket for Republicans as a black Republican, and John King is Mexican-American. And so Republicans um, you know it used to be an all-white slate for Republicans for the most part, and now Republicans will be able to show that they have a, an element of diversity as well.
1: Well, um, thank you for adding that, because that actually does lead us into the other part of the conversation re- uh, pertaining to last night's election results, and that's what happened in Republican uh, congressional races, especially. Um, I'm gonna, Trump made endorsements in that race, and I want to talk about them in a minute, but Greg, as long as you brought it up, um, the second district, Sanford Bishop's uh, uh, district for many, many years, almost three decades, is now competitive. Uh, because of the redrawing of the lines down there in southwest Georgia. And uh, there was a pretty uh, hotly contested race, runoff race, between Jeremy Hunt and Chris West. And one of the reasons I want to talk about it right away is you're talking about an increasingly diverse Republican party on the ballot in November. Jeremy Hunt, who uh, was presumed to be the frontrunner and probable winner of that race, is an African-American Candidate, which really would have been impressive for uh, the Republicans to have been able to add to their ticket. And certainly to have a black Republican facing uh, Sanford Bishop could have been meaningful as well. But maybe the biggest upset of the night was Chris West outspent, outpolled, beat Jeremy Hunt, Greg. Yeah, I mean, uh, Chris West outspent
3: basically 11 to 1. Millions of dollars were spent um, on Jeremy Hunt campaign. He had a lot of institutional support, a lot of Washington support, a lot of, a lot of um, Washington uh, outside groups saw him as a rising star in Republican politics here in Georgia. And um, he, he was, and this was, this. I think this was the shocker of the night um, because, um, you know, it, it had gotten a little less attention in Metro Atlanta media, but this was a huge race down in Southwest Georgia. Um, a lot of ads, a lot of a lot of mudslinging, a lot of back and forth. Um, but Newt Gingrich backed Jeremy Hunt. Nikki Haley backed Jeremy Hunt. Um, a lot of uh, There's millions of dollars spent on behalf of Jeremy Hunt. Chris West ran a shoestring campaign and came out on top, um, in part because he ch- labeled um, Jeremy Hunt as an outsider, as, as someone who is a creature of Atlanta, of a creature of Washington politics, someone who wasn't born and bred and, and, you know, based in the district. Um, West was born and raised in Thomasville, um, and his entire campaign was based on connecting with voters in all 30 of the counties um, in that rural Southwest Georgia district. And at the end of the day, you know, we were watching these poll numbers really closely, the, the returns really closely, and we thought that, you know, some of the bigger, the bigger metropolitan areas, like Bibb County, um, Doherty County would come in and help, um, Jeremy, huh, Jeremy Hunt. And it, they just did not. Uh, Chris West was able to hang on to a narrow victory, but a victory nonetheless. Um,
1: Alan, uh, let's face it. Voters have independent minds when it comes to elections. <laughs> Predictions are always risky. Alan.
4: We saw that, um, in many of these uh, races on the Republican side last night that the, uh, endorsements made by either, uh, Donald Trump or by other Republican party leaders in the case of the, the second district race did not, did not necessarily carry the day. The point I want to make here though, is looking at these efforts by the Republicans to nominate minority candidates, uh, and that we now have a personal, uh, candidate, um, uh, other, uh, it's that um, and Alan, Alan,
1: i minority Alan, 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 I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. Your audio has really suddenly gone bad. I would suggest that you try re- dialing back in again and let us get a, a, a better line for you. So I apologize that we've got to do that because we definitely want to hear your thoughts on that. But in the meantime, Karen, pick up on, on uh, this notion that... Um, the 2nd District was a really unexpected victory uh, for Chris West.
0: Well, right. And if you look, too, at the numbers for the turnout, so this is a congressional district, and if we look across the state, right, they would all be the same equal population um, because that's required by law. But here you only had 28,000 GOP voters in the 2nd District turnout compared if you look at, like, the 6th District here in Metro Atlanta where there was over 40,000 voters. So a fewer number of people came back out into the primary and in that, too, you know, West was more connected to the district. He'd grown up there, made a lot of grassroots appeals, talked about how his family had been in agriculture for generations, and so really spoke to that. And I think that connected and resonated with voters. And interesting about his one of his tweets last night was, uh, quote, time to rotate the crop in southwest Georgia, which I think will be definitely a, a zinger to Bishop in that and playing on the fact that in southwest Georgia – The biggest issue is agriculture, and that's going to come to play in this because it is now a competitive district, especially after how the Republicans redrew the maps this year.
1: Um, That's a great line, time to rotate the crops. I'm glad you brought that up. I hadn't heard that before. Chauncey, the second is right now uh, basically the only competitive congressional district in uh, the state. So watching that race is going to be uh, fascinating. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, in many, many ways, um, seems to be an ideal candidate, military background, a black Republican, which is certainly uh, a, a, an interesting a part of uh, who he is. Um, and, and I wonder what kind of future he might have in politics, but it was certainly not helpful that Republican leaders couldn't get him across the finish line.
5: Absolutely. Yeah. He's gotten a lot of national attention since declaring. clearing uh, has uh, been on Fox News. Uh, the Washington Post recently did a profile of him. Um, I thought it was uh, it's a it's a continued um, issue for the Republican Party when you're talking about 32 um, percent of the of the population in Georgia is African-American and uh, that share of minority vote of, of, of minority residents continues to grow. Um And when when roughly 90 percent of black people in the the state are voting Democrat, um, that's a huge uh, chunk of—that puts you at a huge disadvantage um, for the Republican Party. So trying to ensure that they can get more diversity in their party with candidates like Walker and Hunt is something that's been a priority. They've um, been—the Republicans have invested millions in um, community centers and other um, outreach for minority minority, uh, populations. In the state, and yeah, this was, I think, a a notable blow to them uh, on that front, um, in terms of the uh, the grassroots in that district pushing back against Hunt. Um, Sanford Bishop, um, obviously black Democrat, has represented that district uh, since 1992. So it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out in November. Um,
1: Before we leave for the first break, Alan, we've got Alan Abramowitz back with us. Alan. (laughs) Yes. Hi. Great to be back with you again.
4: Uh, the, the point I was uh, <laughs> having issues up here with the, uh, with the Wi-Fi, but the the point I was going to make was that uh, when you look at these efforts by Republicans to uh, uh, recruit African American candidates in particular around the country, and especially here in Georgia, what I find interesting about this is that uh, these African American candidates are every bit as conservative as the white candidates. Uh, who they're nominating, so there there's no difference in terms of the you know their their the issue positions that they're taking uh, in terms of their uh, willingness to endorse the stolen election lie i mean they are they fit right in uh, and and historically African American Republicans have not won a lar- larger share of the African American vote than white Republican candidates. So if we look at Tim Scott in South Carolina, for example, uh, who's a a great example of this, I think, um, you know, he won essentially with the same coalition that white Republicans win with. He won the overwhelming majority of the white vote and a very small minority of the African-American vote. Uh, And I think that's what we're likely to see here as well, despite the efforts to increase uh, the number of uh, African-American candidates running on the Republican ticket.
1: Okay, let's do this. Let's get to our first break. When we come back, I want to continue talking a little bit more about the runoff elections, especially Donald Trump just cannot catch a break with you Republican voters here in Georgia. We'll talk about that, and then we're going to talk about the testimony in front of the January 6th committee yesterday. You're listening to Political Rewind. Just a quick note to say that the Political Rewind newsletter is going out to email inboxes all across the state. Later this afternoon, we'll have a lot to say about how the elections turned out last night and about the testimony yesterday uh, in Washington. If you're not a subscriber, join us at gpb.org newsletters. newsletters. Uh, Karen Owen, Chauncey Alcorn, Alan Abramowitz, Greg Bluestein, joining me on this post-election day show. Uh, Greg, uh, Donald Trump, once again... The Republican voters of Georgia rejected Donald Trump's endorsement. If he if he didn't have a big Georgia target in his eye already, um, he's really got reason now to wonder about uh, the way this state continues to uh, reject uh, his thinking about who should be winning elections.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and now one of the questions is: Is he going to try to intervene in the November election, or does Herschel Walker, Burt Jones, and the other candidates he's endorsed, who are still standing, do they even want you know much of his help? Do they want a rally? You know, surely they want fundraisers and they want some messaging, but do they want a big rally here in Georgia where he's likely to uh, pop off on on Brian Kemp and some others?
1: So yeah, so let's point out: Here's what happened in the sixth district uh, congressional race, Republican runoff. Uh, He endorsed, Trump endorsed Jake Evans, the son of Randy Evans, a very, very prominent Republican leader in uh, Georgia, over Rich McCormick. Rich McCormick beat Jake Evans by a wide margin in the sixth and and will now go on to face a Democrat named Bob Christian, but it'll be a Republican district. And in the 10th, Vernon Jones had uh, the endorsement of Trump and Mike Collins really walloped him over there as well, Greg. Yeah, it wasn't
3: even close. Um, and we saw those dynamics starting to shape, um, you know, earlier in the runoff period when Governor Brian Kemp endorsed Mike Collins over Vernon Jones. It seemed like a done deal at that point. I mean, Kemp isn't going to get in a race where there's any question about the outcome. Um, and look, you know, I went to, I, I live in the 6th District and went out to the 10th District multiple reporting trips. And the dynamics that were playing out there was not, nothing about Trump. I mean, you wouldn't hear, oh, Trump supported uh, Trump is my main reason for voting. The issues were either local or it was about who they trusted more. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of voters, you know, Vernon Jones hasn't lived in the 10th district until recently. Um, he's a Democrat until until a year ago. He only endorsed Donald Trump in 2020. Right. Um, he, he wasn't he, he didn't have deep roots in the conservative establishment whatsoever. And it made it easy for Mike Collins to paint him as some sort of carpetbagger, as a phony. Um, you know, and it, and it, it was real. Um, I guess the word is chutzpah. Jones to be calling other people rhinos when he literally switched parties <laughs> last year. Um, and look, Jake Evans had the same challenge. He was trying to paint Rich McCormick as some squishy, moderate Republican where McCormick ran as a is a, a pretty far-right conservative even even in the last election cycle when the seventh district was back then when it was a much more of a swing district, he still ran on a very conservative platform and continued to run a conservative platform um, in, in this race now one more important thing to remember that even though Trump's endorsed picks lost by a huge margin in both these open US House races, um, you know, Mike Collins and Rich McCormick are not never Trumpers. They're not squishy. These are very, very conservative, uh, uh, probably, who uh, who support Trump at every turn.
1: Yeah, Alan, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. In the same way that you said a minute ago that black Republican candidates are, you know, there's no, no distance between them and other conservative Republicans in ideology. The same thing should be said about a Rich McCormick and a Mike Collins, they are very Trumpy in their uh, uh, perspective on, uh, on how the country ought to be run. In fact, Rich McCormick, a, a tweet went out last night uh, in which uh, McCormick is quoted as saying, I expect Donald Trump to call us because we're going to be friends together and we're going to move forward together because that's what the party is about, Alan.
4: Exactly.
1: Uh, and, and when we look around the
4: country again uh, at the races in which Trump has made endorsements, uh, we see that in many cases, uh, where the candidate he endorses loses, they're losing to opponents who are staunch conservative Republicans, uh, who are very supportive of Trump's agenda, who have even, in many cases, endorsed the stolen election lie. Um, so there's very little difference in that regard between the candidates Trump endorses uh, and the candidates that that uh, 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 he doesn't endorse in those races. In the races where he uh, endorsed candidates have won, uh, you know, in some cases, the uh, Republicans who've been defeated have been those who have been more openly critical of Trump. Um, mm-hmm. Those who stood up to Trump, those who voted for the impeachment resolutions. Those who voted for the creation of the January 6th committee, those sorts of Republicans. Republicans like Liz Cheney, for example, or Adam Kinzinger. Adam Kinzinger declined to run again because I think he knew that he had no chance of winning his Republican primary. Liz Cheney is in big, big trouble in Wyoming, uh, and I think she's very likely to lose. Uh, and that's because she has actually stood up to Trump. And Republicans who actually stand up to Trump don't do well. But that doesn't Karen, mean that Trump's endorsed candidates are always going to win.
1: But, Karen, what is it about uh, Trump's endorsements here? Uh, it didn't work in the governor's race. Uh, it, it didn't work in the Secretary of State's race. I mean, he just can, c- continues to be uh, rejected in terms of his endorsements by Georgia Republican voters.
0: I think we see that Georgia Republican voters are not going to be told who they need to be supporting, right? They have an independence in them. I think that is seen, too, that after the runoff in January 21 and the Republicans lost those Senate seats, they turned now, I think, to see what do they need to do to maintain power and control of some of these seats. And it's not always beckoning back to Trump. I think with each of these districts, interesting enough, they are open seats. So the candidates had to really identify themselves into the districts because there was no incumbent there. And then part of this with like the sixth district, Rich McCormick had to have somewhat of an advantage because he had precise county. And when he ran in the seventh, he did have voters who already knew him, unlike Jake Evans, who still had to get his name recognition out. Even though he had Trump backing, that still didn't appeal to some of that those voters. Because the sixth does have segments of North Fulton, parts of East Cobb. I mean, there's a lot of different diversity there. Now, on the 10th, a little bit different, right? Because that district really is Trump country. I mean, a lot of those Republicans are still going to align with that. I think what will be interesting now is Kemp, Herschel, and um, Burt Jones may not be asking for the Trump rallies or things to come in because they're looking at other plays, but will the congressional candidates want some type of because their districts may be leaning and they need those voters to turn back out. And will they kind of say, hey, Trump, come visit us. Maybe there's a play here in the 10th district for you to have a rally over here.
1: Uh, By the way, Chauncey, as I throw it to you, I should also point out in that 10th district race, uh, Vernon Jones had Trump's endorsement. But remember, Mike Collins had the endorsement of Brian Kemp. Uh, uh, So uh, Kemp gets a big win out of that. Chauncey?
5: Yeah, I was going to say, I think that, uh, to Alan's point earlier, uh, it it also matters who the candidate is and kind of uh, if they're conservative bona fides are viewed as pure. Um, If you're looking at uh, Purdue versus Kemp, for example, um, Purdue was kind of a one-issue guy. Like, it's all about the, you know, election was rigged, and that was, like, the only thing he focused on during the debates. Uh, Kemp uh, did a good job of shoring up his conservative bona fides with, you know, the constitutional carry bill, obviously SB 202 and the other election integrity bills and other bills like that. they kind of, you know, reaffirmed um, for conservatives where he stands on those kind of issues. Um, uh, Vernon um, Jones, um, obviously former Democrat, kind of viewed by by a lot of people as more of an opportunist. I don't think candidates like that have fared as well um, with even with Trump's endorsement. I think the ones that, uh, you know, when it, when it becomes an issue of like Trump's like cult following, you know, kind of focusing on himself and losing this election. A lot of Republicans um, tune that out. They're, but when they see a candidate that, uh, you know, that they don't b- believe, like a Liz Cheney, ha- is actually uh, a-, a conservative or Republican in-, in name only, they tend to, uh, you know, target those um, candidates. And those are the ones that are getting weeded out in-, in this election cycle.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show and come back and talk about the um, testimony that we heard from Georgians in yesterday's January 6th committee hearings. This is Political Rewind.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: We're back on uh, Political Rewind, and uh, I want to get into uh, some of the testimony we heard Yesterday, where the focus was all on uh, Georgia uh, and, and Arizona, uh, was also part of yesterday's hearings. Um, but, Greg, I think, I, I, for me personally, the single most compelling testimony I've heard uh, yet in all of this has been by uh, Wandrea Shea Moss, a Georgia, Fulton County election worker. She's been doing that job for, I think, about a decade now. Um, And and her mother, Ruby Freeman, also worked in Fulton County elections. Um, Greg, of course, they were targeted by Trump and Giuliani by name uh, because of this accusation that a video showed them pulling a suitcase out from a hidden location and feeding fake ballots into the Fulton County uh, voter uh, uh, apparatus. And, And, of course, it was a lie. And, um, but their lives have been irrevocably over, you know, upset by what happened. And, and I wanna talk about it, but let's listen to just a little bit of what Wondrea Moss said about how her life has changed uh, since she was the subject of campaigns of hatred and violence against her.
2: It's turned my life upside down. Um, I no longer give out my business card don't want anyone knowing my name. I don't want to go anywhere with my mom because she might yell my name out over the grocery aisle or something. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. I've gained about 60 pounds. I just don't do nothing anymore. I second guess everything that I do. Um, it's affecting my life in a, in a major way, in every way. All because of lies. For me doing my job, same thing I've been doing forever.
1: Greg, um, her testimony was heartbreaking, and it showed us the human toll that this craven effort to subvert a Democratic election, a uh, could had on two individuals uh, that that are part of our own community, Greg.
3: Heartbreaking and blood boiling. I mean, you hear about how these lies um, have consequences, right? It's not just, it's not just rhetoric on a campaign trail. It's not just stop the steal chance and all this, this, this rhetoric ruined her life. It threatens to ruin her life and and her mom's life. She can't, as she said, she can't go to the grocery store. She's worried about using her name in public. Um, People purporting to make a citizen's arrest barged into her grandmother's home, you know, an old lady. Um, people are doxing her grandmother, ordering pizzas at her house, doing horrible things. And it's all because of these election blow and, and And, you know, one of the things that came out in testimony was that the purported USB card full of votes, it was a uh. ginger mint that yeah. she was passing to her mom, right? I mean, it's infuriating. Listen to this. And we knew at the time it was garbage, right? We were reporting... Falsehoods left and right, but there is a. This took root in the far right. I can't even want to call it media, just far right outlets that, that, that propagated these lies. And then we heard Rudy Giuliani come to Georgia and do a hearing with state lawmakers and and promote these falsehoods that directly affected and directly threatened the lives of, of these women who no longer can work as. as as it, it, Fulton County election staffers, as election staffers anymore, because it, they don't want to you know, put, put themselves at risk anymore, and it's hard to blame
1: them. She, uh, she, she said to the committee that not a single uh, worker remains uh, on the job after what happened in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Chauncey, my personal observation when I saw her sit down at that witness table in the ornate committee room on Capitol Hill in the Capitol was there was a sweetness about her that was just hard to miss and um... she seemed to be someone who looked around and was startled by trying to figure out what the heck had led her to be in this place and this situation um, that that was part of Chauncey what was so moving to me about her appearance
5: absolutely uh, obviously there's a uh, you know um other concerns as it relates to other election workers um one of the uh uh shame off and her mom are kind of the quintessential example of of what the worst fears are of a lot of election workers with um the passage i believe it was sb 541 which is um and you know gives the uh, uh georgia bureau of investigation greater authority to like police elections so there are people now who are fearful you know not just or there's, uh, that they'll be uh, pressured, or that their safety are being threatened um, by the general public, but that they might actually be, you know, prosecuted if they if they're working and, and somebody uh, doesn't think that the election went their way. So these are some of the concerns that have been raised within the aftermath of the passage of these election integrity bills. Um, and uh, yeah, as, as, you know, it goes back to. Obviously, a dark history um, as it relates to voting for African-Americans and intimidation in this state um, and across the South. So these are some of the things that were raised, I know, um, in um, uh, segments of Black Twitter um, that was when this was brought up, when the testimony was going on yesterday. And uh, going forward, you know, I'm just curious what it's gonna, how it's going to impact election workers across the state. Um, you know, what were they thinking as they watched this as well?
1: Alan?
4: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think what we have to keep in mind here is that this intimidation of election workers is deliberate. That that that's the point. Um, that there is a goal of in, uh, among those who are spreading this disinformation of intimidating election workers uh, and making it more difficult to fairly administer our elections. Uh, so it's very disturbing. I want to mention one other thing that came out in the testimony yesterday that I think is very significant, potentially very significant legally. And that's something that uh, came from, I think his name is Sam Bowers, who's the speaker of the Arizona uh, House of Representatives. When he said that, when he asked Rudy Giuliani for the evidence for the claims of election fraud, what he was told, and there were others who also heard this conversation, uh, was that, well, we don't have evidence, we have theories. Uh, And if that's the case, then I think it just shows very clearly that Giuliani and the others who were spreading this disinformation knew that it was disinformation. They knew there was no evidence. Uh, They knew that that they were breaking the law. When they did this and uh, they are potentially, I think, as very serious, you know, in, in base, serious legal liability as, as a result of that or could potentially anyway.
0: So p- thinking about what Alan just shared about the evidence not being there and these are theories. And if we go back to the beginning of this conversation, which is the election worker theories destroyed her life. Not evidence or facts, but people propagating theories out there for their own cause in this lie. And that's what's so upsetting, that that then affected them. And I think this has a bigger impact on America as a democratic republic. We are dependent upon elections for our government. And we are dependent upon people to work those elections to make sure our ballots are counted And everything runs smoothly and now we are facing situations where people don't want to be a part of this work because they're scared for their own lives and you know um miss moss was the true representation sharing her testimony that gabriel sterling even spoke to about others where they had been intimidated or their own lives had been threatened and that's why he went out before the press and told the president to stop this that people were going to get hurt and yet our president didn't act. And that has serious ramifications, I think, as we move forward as a nation, what we think about our democratic republic and how we want to preserve that and, and making sure that we can have elections that are run smoothly and fairly and that we trust them.
1: Um, thank you for that. Greg, I want to play one more sound bite um, and that's um, uh, uh, Ruby Freeman, um, who calls herself Lady Ruby. She's known in her community. She's a small businesswoman who calls herself Lady Ruby. Uh, And here's something that she said yesterday that I thought was extraordinarily impactful.
2: Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American. Not to target one, but he targeted me, Lady Ruby. A small business owner, a mother, a proud American citizen who's standing up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. Greg? Uh, It's just hard hard to hear,
3: Um, and again, uh, someone who's not a public official, right? I mean, these are the unsung heroes of our democracy. These are the people who make sure our votes are processed and counted accurately. Um, this is not someone who signed up for that sort of attack. It's one thing for a public official to get attacked by Donald Trump. It happens. Governor Kemp knows that very well. So the Secretary of State brought Roethlisberger. It happens even to some Republicans. But for someone who is an anonymous you know, public official who's just here to – who's just an election staffer trying to make sure that our votes are properly counted, trying to make sure the wheels of our democracy turn, it's infuriating. It really is. Just to, just to hear that testimony, it was hard, it was hard to watch.
1: Um, Yeah, it was extraordinarily powerful. I thought about them when I I voted yesterday after that testimony was concluded. And my polling place, uh, I was at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, only the 33rd person to vote. Because we know how low the turnout is for runoff elections. And it certainly was true in my precinct. And I had to think about those two as I talked to the workers who had been there, they told me, since like 5 in the morning getting the precinct set to receive votes, no one showing up throughout the day, unfortunately for them. They knew they'd be there till uh, well into uh, last night. And yes, they get some money for their service, but Karen, let's face it, it is a job that um, we need to give them credit for because uh, uh, you're right, they're kind of the, the backbone of our democratic republic.
0: They are, and we should thank them and not harass them when we are there voting. of personal privilege here bill i was the first one to vote yesterday morning at 7 a.m in my precinct and there was a little bit of a snafu the little ipad that you check in did not work well but those workers apologized to me for holding me up i thanked them they even offered me coffee so if we're listening thank those workers for what they're doing all
1: right Um, i'm sorry i'm sorry to say we are completely out of time for today's show i Really appreciate all of you for your smart analysis, for joining us to talk about the election, uh, to talk about what happened in, in the uh, committee hearings yesterday. So Cha- Chauncey Elcorn, Ellen Abramowitz, uh, Karen Owen, and Greg Bluestein, I appreciate your being part of today's Political Rewind. We are out of time for today's show across the state. I hope you will find ways to protect yourself from the extraordinary heat that we know we're all gonna be experiencing today. Um, Politics continues to be hot, and we'll talk about it again on the show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.